welcome to Saltivation. The Saltivation Show is a podcast series featuring the leading voices in salt, where we talk about the issues and strategies to help you make sense of state and local tax. All right, Jordan, thank you so much for being with us today on the Saltivation Podcast. It's nice to have you back. You are our first repeat guest. Uh-oh. Wow. That, I am quite honored. It was uh, great to do it the first time, to do it the second time. The best thing about it, it's probably been a couple of years. There's so much right? going on. You would think in most fields, it's like it, it goes at this glacial pace. No, right? It's always moving. It's great. Certainly not right now. So for you know anyone who might be new, can you just give us, you have a very long, successful, great history. Could you just give us a <laughs> brief overview of what you're doing, how you got there, and then we'll dig into the new. Sure. No, Meredith, I, that's a very kind way of saying good when you're old, <laughs> but I appreciate that. It's, it's all good. It's a matter how you feel, so it's all good. Uh, let's see. I, I Started my career in Arthur Anderson back in the mid-80s when state and local taxes was just getting started. Um, in fact, I was part of the first state and local tax team for Arthur Anderson back in Chicago in 1985-86 year. And so it was something they said for attorneys in particular, it'd be a fun area, lots of growth, lots of constitutional laws, things that we studied. And, you know, in many ways, they were absolutely right. It's been a great career choice. Um, I, I left there after a couple of years and went to McDermott, Will & Emery, large firm, um, was on the team that argued the Quill case um, before the U.S. Supreme Court, intimately involved in all the mechanisms uh, around that. It was a lot of fun, learned a lot, uh, and then made the second best decision of my life other than marrying my wife, came to HMB. Formerly known as Ford Marcus and Burke, now HMB Legal Counsel, and uh, worked with Fred Marcus and Marilyn Wethicum and a bunch of other people, and just had phenomenal clients, friends. Growth of the area has been great. We do just about anything in the in the tax field, and it's we were just talking about. There's just so much going on. It's always challenging, and I still love it, and it's just great. There's That's so awesome. much to do. I still love it. That's a good sign for those of you considering a career like this, which most people don't. <laughs> oh my! I know, no, but think about it. I mean, it, it, I will say every day. I remember when Wayfair came out. We're like, oh my god, half my work is going to go away. Right. Next is for sales tax, and all it's done has been busier yeah. since then. I mean, it wasn't right. And then we talk about public eighty six two seventy two going away. That's a whole different field that's potentially open now to defend and fight against that. There's always business. Remember, Judy, business and non business income right. used to be a huge issue. And now we fight about not whether it's business income, but about right. factor representation. And there's, you know, that's, and that's what we're seeing right now. There's always something new and fun that's going on, keeping it interesting and different. We're not doing the same right. thing over and over again. Yeah. When I think on that too, right at the at the end of the day, states are led by people, and humans can change, and legisl- legislators can change, and policy can change. And so when you're right, when you're governed by people. You have an opportunity for change and, you know, there could be a different department, you know, a leader of the Department of Revenue and they decide to change XYZ, right? Colorado used to be pretty easy-ish when it came to like income tax, even we're going to ignore sales tax. But then over the last couple of years, they've decoupled from everything. They've 
you know, I think it, a lot of it really started with Oracle and talking about like the unity and the foreign activity. And so, yeah, at the end of the day, people change, policy changes, and <laughs> therefore we have to adjust. Yeah. And then God, our businesses change though, don't you think? I mean, all of us are talking right now because of the internet, because of Wi-Fi. I mean, that is a crazy pivot. And, and anybody can touch anybody and have a client just about anywhere now if you're willing to do it via Zoom or Teams or whatever, right? So that has really changed the character of how people can market and increase their business, their customer profile. And I even think the competition among the states and the locals now, you know, really emphasize because everybody went to a single sales factor because there's a way that could be competitive with the Iowa that yeah. had it from the beginning, right? Now we got to import it, but now they're realizing there's there's limitations to that, and they've got to look at things differently. And then, you know, increasing the rates becomes a challenge. You can't do it beyond a certain amount. Inelasticity of demand with tax rates. Got to expand the base. Well, what's expanding? Stuff related to the internet, services, digital products. You know, the future. I won't say looks bright, but the future for SALT practitioners, there's going to be plenty to do and plenty to figure out over the next generation of, yeah. of people Well, that's like interesting us. that you said, because we had a conversation very recently with you know a senior tax policy analyst at the Tax Foundation, and she we were talking about some of the states that had done rate reductions and you know why maybe some of that is, and it's because of competition. And you never kind of like think about, I guess, you know, being vulnerable, right? I hadn't necessarily thought about that. I was like, well, yeah, there is a lot of, there is a lot to that. Right now, and, and you know, and, and the thing that's interesting is that governments are run by politicians, politicians run for reelection. How do you get reelected at least the, the olden days was based upon lowering the tax burden or doing this or whatever else, right? So if you could campaign with saying, we're gonna get rid of the corporate net income tax. Oh, but by the way, we're gonna to have to raise other taxes to balance that out. The state budgets are state budgets, but now they're saying we wanna reduce the rates. It seems attractive, but state spending rarely goes down. And this is, you know, this is what the cyclical nature of it is. We're coming off the post-pandemic years in 21, 22, where the uh, excess, the reserves were refilled at all the states. And so they're reducing everything. But now we're like, before this year got to August, September, we were supposed to be in a recession. Everybody got nervous right. about it. It's got to start looking at new ways, right? So it's be driven by the economy and how much they have in there and, and who they want to benefit. Really just... We had Jordan, as you spoke to kind of state coffers, right? We were at IPT in Dallas and what the comptroller of Texas came and liked to, and spoke very highly of the amount of excess that Texas had. And so very shortly thereafter, there was the announcement that they increased the minimum tax or the no tax due threshold. I think they doubled it. They got rid of the no tax due return. So just from a franchise tax perspective, you know, Texas did some things to modify that. I don't know if, you know, that was a result of excess or it was a coincidence, but I don't know that there are much things that are coincidences when it comes to fiscal policy. Or it was an Fair. election year. And when you do, right, and when you do things for small businesses and individuals, they vote, right? And outside of Citizens United, they're the ones who are ultimately deciding who gets put in the office and you make things a little bit better for them in the year or the year before election. But to lower rates or take know, away a base, that's a big deal. I feel like we've been seeing more adding big to deal. a base, you know, the digital advertising, Nevada Commerce, what, eight, nine years ago, that was sort of like, are you kidding me? 
you know, and now we're seeing this digital ads taken. Now it's getting some legs. Wayfair, obviously, which I yeah. think, you know, we knew that was needed to happen because we were seeing too much e-commerce eviscerating Main Street America, right. but still. So, capital gains in Washington or excise tax, whatever you uh-huh. want to call it, right? Uh, we'll find out. That's, you know, one of the cases we'll get an answer in, hopefully in 2024, if they take the case. Um, but you're right. No, and that's 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 that creativity mm-hmm. between, you know, whether it's the government looking for an ability to raise revenue without offending the electorate by putting it on people that you could point to, whether it's corporations, which always was the, the tag, but now it's wealthy individuals. They don't pay their fair share. So you're kind of pushing the burden out to other people. And the wealthy people, they only get one vote. So, you know, that's it's it's a very good common man type argument. Uh, but it's, you know, I, and, and we're not done because... States are only limited by what their state constitution and the federal constitution or the state federal statutes say, right? So there's a lot more base out there that we haven't tapped into. And you're right, Judy, the whole digital world, we're just tapping it. I mean, I've read how many articles in the last month about cryptocurrency and why aren't we taxing it? Now, I'm not, I will never lecture on what cryptocurrency is or is not. I kind of accept what everybody else has said and just go with that. I, I, but it seems to me it's it is a area where there is profit loss and certainly proceeds. And why wouldn't it be right. taxed? Well, even sales tax. Is I mean, not- a token, a token. You know, a gaming token could be a, a fungible thing. I mean, I don't know. There's some even sales tax world world is impacted by that crypto. Um, and the game, right. all be, kinds of things in the app world is uh, digital that is potentially taxable for some reason or another. It'll be interesting because I, I do have a client that is a um, a precious metal exchange, uh-huh. okay? And they've done a really good job of going around the country and getting laws to, to, to remove it from sales yeah. tax, likening it to currency. And then you got crypto, even that has currency in the word, yep. right? Cryptocurrency. And it's a question of, well, is it really currency? Is it not? It's traded. But back in the olden days, we had sheep and cows and goats that mm-hmm. we traded too as mm-hmm. currency. Certainly no one would say that it was currency. You know, it certainly represents a value. It's not issued by any government. It's not regulated by any government um, per se. So it, it, there's a, there is a vast amount of base still out there to be taxed either on a gross receipts tax, sales tax, or even some Right, kind and of the payroll tax. taxes seem to be rearing their ugly heads. I was just reading, you know, we've got that going on in Washington State where they're kind of going after the um, the payroll, like just to get a little extra cash, you know, let's go after your payroll. To you know, it, it, here, our new mayor, Brandon Johnson in Chicago, has talked about reinstating what we used to call the head tax. You have more than 40 employees in the city, and then you pay $5 a quarter on every employee over the city, which is the reason why they got rid of it. It's so anti-competitive. Move us, move your 1,000 people into the city, and you'll pay on 960 yeah. of them, which is just bizarre. Yeah. But again, uh, certainly city of Chicago, state of Illinois does have some budgetary concerns, and that's a way to yep. go at it. No, because we have one in Denver. We have an OP, occupational privilege tax, and we have five cities in Colorado, some of which no one's even heard of that has one. So 68 bucks a year, some de minimis amounts, not a lot, but it is one of those annoyances for large employers that they do or do not know about it. Well, it's not even large employers. Right, no, it's, it's small employers. 
So you can have right. if, or I think there's an income. Well, and like contractors, I think if you earn like a, there's a minimum threshold that if you earn X amount of money as a contractor in Denver, you're subject to the OPT. Right. Um, 400 bucks, pretty de minimis. So, yeah. Right. It, it, it's not the dollars necessarily, it's, it's the, the compliance, compliance burdens. And then, the, yep. right, then the penalties associated with the failure to comply where they get the money. It may be $60 in tax, but $100 minimum yep. fine for penalties right. for not filing. I, I call them nuisance taxes because they really get you. And they're one of those gotchas that you're like, oh, I didn't even know. And then you've got a lot of like ADP kind of knows a lot of this, but I'll tell you some of these small to medium software companies or women are trying to outsource payroll. They didn't know about them. They're trying to get in that game because there's a big market for payroll compliance, but they don't know about these ancillary taxes. So we, you end up going to this cheaper provider and then missing the ball on some of your local compliance issues. So taxpayers are like, what? <laughs> so. so then kind of transitioning that, kind of using that gotcha as our transition point and kind of litigation. Jordan, what do you think have been some of the key court cases in 2023 or maybe tail end of 2022 within the last kind of 12, 15, 18 months that have been decided that, you know, are may even be continued on or, you know, that we should all make sure that we're reading and add to the repertoire of make sure you know what you're talking about. Uh, I, yeah, I mean, and I put down a couple, I thought about a couple of them and they're all different, but one of them, U.S. Auto Parts out of Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. I thought was a great decision. Forget about the fact that they're going only back a year from where they're allowed to impose a Wayfair standard. It goes a lot to retroactivity, what the Supreme Court said about nexus and passing laws and not agreeing to go backwards with some maybe some constitutional restraints about it. It was um, states taking positions kind of randomly, not by that whole process where they adopted a regulation and it got challenged on procedural grounds, got kicked out, they reinstated it, did it correctly, imposed it, and the court still said no, it's more of a retroactive and the old laws still apply even though they were overruled. So I kind of like that. So I think one of the things that we have to be careful of, and particularly these taxes, is the retroactivity nature of them. We'll see that in public law 86272, which is a real big concern for me. But I like the fact, and it was a well-reasoned decision saying, here's what the court said. So people at this time, this is what they relied upon. Forget about it's overruled. There's no way they could be clairvoyant mm-hmm. and anticipate change in nexus rules. And therefore, Mass, you're out of luck. And I think that was, I, I understood Mass's position. I understand the arguments. And I do think the court got it right, is that you can't expect people just to comply because the state says it's right. You know, our jobs are based upon saying, well, wait a second, is that not? And I think the way that that worked procedurally, first with the the improper publication of the proposed regulations first, and then ultimately they did it correctly. I think those are some of the challenges that we're gonna be have to looking to, is not just is the law valid, but especially at state and local levels in particular, is the process by which they impose Mm -hmm. them valid. And we're starting to see that uh, and, and things being kicked out. And, and, you know, another one, the American Catalog Mailer case out of uh, California, PL 86270, California adopted it by bulletin, right? The MCC position, questions about what that meant. Well, the court on a motion for summary judgment, which they rejected, said, well, first off, there's not enough facts in the record for me to 
grant motion for summary judgment on behalf of American Mailer Catalog as to whether 86272 is being a supremacy clause applied retroactively, some of the issues associated with it. But what they did find, again, very important, is that by passing a bulletin under California law, that's the equivalent of a regulation, as it is in a lot of states. Instructions to forms, bulletins, notes, memorandums of law, they're considered to be regulations. And if you're going to pass a regulation, it has to go through a certain process, and you have to have open comment and time for do it and, and uh, meetings, and it's got to go for a first reading and a second reading, and all the states are different. It's a unique way to challenge things, but it can be very effective, and that's what American Catalog, Mailer Catalog did in California on a very big topic, whether public law 86272 should be changed. They have a temporary win in that it might be invalid, in that it didn't follow the process. So we have a couple of those. And then the last one I put down, which I love, was the Online Merchants Guild out of Pennsylvania. Again, it was challenging uh, the more or less retroactive application of Wayfair to some of the smaller remote sellers. And it wasn't the fact that they won and weren't, uh, and this has to do with uh, one of my favorite topics of property in a state, what's de minimis, what's not. So it has to do with a marketplace that has inventory, control of the inventory, ships the inventory, receives it back in damaged goods, collects all the money, but the online seller still has title to it. And the question before the court is, well, yes, that is an indice of ownership, but let's look at all the indices of ownership. And title, just title without control, all the other things, risk of loss, uh, shipping it out, getting it back, you know, uh, some merchantability warranties really isn't much of anything. And found that the diminished amount of inventory based upon just having title wasn't enough. And I think as we go forward, physical presence is no longer enough, but it's still the yeah. standard, right? If you have physical presence in a state, that was always it for freeway fare. And here, what the court said is, it's got to be even more than even just title. And then he went even beyond saying, it's not enough presence. And I don't know if I agree with this. It's not enough presence even for you guys to send them Nexus questionnaires. There's a due process violation. It's not fair. You're asking a bunch of questions in this case. So not only are they don't have physical mm -hmm. presence, you guys have to leave them alone if they're small enough and their presence is small enough, which, you know, it, the Pennsylvania Department of Revenue did a pretty nifty litigation type trick at the Commonwealth Court. It's non-precedential, and they didn't appeal it. So they have a non-precedential adverse decision that I, you know, a practitioners like us, go out there and say, hey, this is a great decision. This, there's some really good stuff in here. Non-precedential, but we still cite to it. We still bring yeah. it up. Well, I think about some things we're and, seeing in Colorado. We've got home rule cities, and we have this such system for sales tax, okay? Well, not all the cities yes. are in it yet. So we're 70 cities. I think we got 59, 60 in it. So we're 10 away from full. So now we've got cities coming out and saying, we have a Wayfair law because you have to comply with the state. Now you have to comply with our city. How the heck do you deal with that as a taxpayer when you can't get everybody in the system? The system's still a little clunky. So why would you be able to put, and is that really going to be allowed? So I think we're going to, you know, taxpayers are going to lose by a thousand cuts 
because they're like, whatever, it's a small little town, let you go. But it's the bigger holistic view. And then we, the other thing we have in our home rules is this, what we call Tabor violations, where we have this situation where our home rule cities put a new law in place via reg without a vote of the people, completely turn something upside down and say, now we're going to treat it this way. Well, that's not okay. But who's, who's watching that? Not taxpayers. They're, unless they have an ability to talk to someone like us, they get beholden to these notices and they go, oh my gosh, what do I do? Right? So. You know, and, and from our perspective, I think it brings up a whole host of different type defenses. Mm-hmm. Remember after um, after Quill, everybody thought due process would be dead in the state and local tax arena. But that's really what we're talking about. The whole reason why the there's notices for regulations and public hearings and readings is to put people on notice, right? And they failed to do that with whatever pronouncement they put out. It's a due process violation. Tabor is mm-hmm. adopting, saying to let everybody know fair notice right? Mm-hmm. You've got to follow these yeah. rules. That's what they try to do. The other thing that, in particularly in Colorado, and no offense to your hometown and the local jurisdictions out there, one of the things that we've had problems with is finding what the rules are. No, no, no. Right? Right? You got you got written ordinances that are not really accessible mm-hmm. online, and yet mm-hmm. you're subject to them, and you're trying to figure out what they are, when does it apply, when did it go into effect? And so we have a project that you'd be so interested in. We're trying to comply with local jurisdictions. And we say, do you have a VDA program, right? We are literally trying to raise the Congress people, the, the local council people to find the right person to find out who runs that and if they accept well, it. Oh, we can give you that information, Jordan. We've done it ourselves finally. And I shamed one of our cities okay. just recently because several oh. years ago they did not have a program and they right away said, Oh, we do now. We have a program. Don't shame us publicly in this hearing. But, we, you know, it's funny. Or they've changed the rules on the programs. Like, oh, well, we're all going to do this yes. or we're going to do that. I'm like, Okay, wait a minute. We participated. You let us in based on a certain set of facts. And now you're going to say something different? On an audit later? No, 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 no. That's not good tax policy. Yeah. No, and we we did get a couple of these, which is probably the worst answer you can get is, um, we might have one, but don't worry about it because we don't have enough people at the city to do any audit. So just go ahead and start filing. And then you go to your, what do you tell your client? You say, well, I kind of talked to somebody who seems like they knew and they said, don't worry about it. I can't give that advice. No, no, no. And then we have this group called RRG, Revenue Recovery Group, which is a bunch of um, retired auditors. That There's a couple groups like this out there. So they have captive auditors that run out on behalf of these cities and take pretty extreme positions against taxpayers. Eight, nine year look backs. I mean, it's brutal because- you know, as you know, when it comes to this, we're not talking enough material tax at stake to actually litigate. You can twenty, fifty thousand of a rearage, you're not gonna litigate that. You're just gonna feel um extorted is the way I feel like some of this happens to our clients. It's not it's not good tax compliance driving behavior. No, no, we, you know, <laughs> this is this is the, that's a, that's exactly right. It's it's the you know, the million dollars for the Fortune 500 is something that they can deal with and they can afford to litigate if they want, or they just pay it and everybody like, you know, I'm mm-hmm. sorry to do it. It's the $50,000 for a smaller retailer. It's coming right out of their oh. pocket. They didn't reserve for it. They don't understand reserve. They didn't do it. They certainly didn't understand this 
compliance burden and those are the ones that are really painful and that's you know that's the hardest part about it it's like you got to tell somebody we could fight you it's going to cost you a hundred grand to fight this twenty five thousand yeah. dollar issue we may win we may right. and we're, we and we're fighting on principle so thank you very much for being willing to raise the mantle and go after it you know and raise a charge but right. you know who's going to absorb that cost yeah, it's a it's a really yes. interesting death by account thousand cuts in some of the locals, especially, but just some of these contrary positions. And like you said with Pennsylvania, they don't really want it out there because I feel sometimes you find these regulators saying we don't really want it out in public forum because then we have to stick to it. <laughs> well, that, then we're on the record, <laughs> exactly. Well, and anymore, it's going to be used against you on either position. Was it a good position? Was it a bad position? But somehow, it's going to come back to bite you in the ass. That you know, by someone somewhere. No, no. I, I, I was raised with this principle: is that as an advocate, I can argue both sides of any right. issue, and I actually think I'm obligated to do it. The state should pick a side, right? They have to decide what side they're on. And go with it. Now, you may make half the people angry and half the people sad, but that's the choice they have to do. For advocates, we can argue both sides. And, and in fact, it makes my wife very angry when I just play devil's advocate because that's yeah, what we yeah, do. Yeah, no, it's a way of thinking for sure. But I just had a table that I, you know, I said to this auditor, I said, it's a city issue. And I said, I'm just going to make you aware, like put it to assessment. We think you violated Tabor and we're going to bring it up through the system because we cannot yeah. comport to this. You basically change the character of our business and it impacts everybody in the same business like us. And is this how you're treating this one versus us? We're not here to make an example of this. And 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 by right. doing some of these things, it actually creates a larger tax consequence to the taxpayer. So did your voters really want to pay tax that way on labor and in the inputs? I don't know that they knew that. Right. Right. Well, and with that... Are there, Jordan, do you have any recent tax decisions that come to mind that you think were just bad? Like the outcome was bad. It was bad policy. It was just, you know, not great. Yeah, well, yeah, the, the, the one that really, the most recent and really one that stuck to my craw because it was a really good decision up until it was decided by the Michigan Supreme Court is the Vectrum decision. Because it is an alternative apportionment. And just real briefly, the facts are, it's a Minnesota-based company. Uh, they do 10% of their work in Michigan every year. In the year at issue, they got a major job there, and 70% of their revenue for the year is in Michigan. So it's 10, 10, 10, 10, 70. And in the 70 year, they sell their business. Mm. And Michigan says, okay, you've got, we're not even arguing whether it's business or non-business income. Business income, what's your apportionment factor for this year? You know, we're, we're going to exclude extraordinary gain out of the factor. So it's not where your intangibles are back in Minnesota. So we're just going on your normal operational business. It becomes 70% in the year of disposition. Michigan said we got to tax 70%. So it went up on two, on two things. One is the apportionment methodology makes sense, excluding the extraordinary gain. And two, if it is okay under the statute to, to exclude extraordinary gain, is this something that should be handled through alternative apportionment? And this has gone up and down to the Michigan Supreme Court a couple times. And in each time they said, regardless of where we end up, the law says you exclude it. This is an extraordinary situation. You need to come up with a methodology for alternative apportionment. And the Supreme Court remanded back down, worked its way back up. Taxpayer win, taxpayer win, goes back before the Michigan Supreme Court. And they go, um, you know what? We really don't see a problem. Sales factor is the way that we've decided to apportion income. 
and therefore a 70% factor in the year of disposition, even though it's extraordinary to every other year before and after the year of sale, that's enough. No alternative apportionment needed. And like, this is the definition of alternative apportionment, right? It's, this is, you know, forget about what you do, whether the, the gain, the proceeds or the net gain is included in the factor, denominator, if it's, if it's, we'll get to those cases in just a bit. Let's exclude them. Go for, go up 700%, right? That's Hazri's on steroids. That was 260. This is 700% increase in what's due to the state because of an extraordinary transaction. And so, and in the dissent actually raised the issue that I think is most prevalent that I want to see litigation. I know we're going to get to it, but litigation in the future is why is the sales factor alone determinative of your income attributable to the state, right? Originally under UDITFA, right, we had three-factor apportionment, equally weighted, dollar of people, dollar of property, dollar of customer, all equally weighted to contribute to income. For political reasons, we've gone to sales factor because it encourages businesses to move into your state because you don't count property or payroll. But now with this and then excluding gain from disposition, which generates income to the base, you've got a mismatch right there and it's been fought about and will continue to be fought about. But now it's just on sales. And the thing is, most of these gains in, in 2021, 22, we've had a lot of large gains. Large gains are generally represented by something that doesn't exist until the sale, which is goodwill, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. They say our assets are worth a hundred million dollars, but I got a billion dollars for the sale. Why? Goodwill. Yeah. It's category seven on the appraisal list, right? It's the last thing, catch all. You can't put it on any other asset that goes into goodwill. And then the theory that I'm pushing for is what they're saying is that goodwill is only associated with where the customers are located. It's not the fact that your people are great. It's not the fact that you've produced property that's great. It's the fact your customers are great. And we all love our customers. But to take all of that gain and say it's attributable to where our customers are is just yeah, false. No. It's a false narrative. No question. And it's been an evolution. It's been an evolution through the whole adoption of single sales factor. Now we get these extraordinary gains and we're saying it's all, all the goodwill goes to where your customers right. are. And to me, that's a complete mismatch and something we're going to well, be Well, even showing. in a so large the contract, there's no way it all goes to where you bill it. Most things are broad, right? If you think about a multinational company with a shared service center, you're billing one place, it's being used across the company. So it's not even accurately reflective of like where it's the benefit is. Yeah, it's a really interesting Quite world in this e-economy. Um, and you raise, you raise one of my bugaboos, which is... Billing address. That's what oh, the statute right? says. If for nothing okay. else, you guys, where did you send your bill? Yeah, when was the last time you sent out a paper bill? <laughs> People don't even What's get address addresses anymore. I mean, really, like small right. starting businesses, they just need a credit card. They don't even need an address. When was the last time you bought a book of stamps? Nothing is. It's delivered electronically. Yeah. And to your point, my service center can be anywhere. It could be a hundred people. Two in every yeah. state. Or it could be in India. But they all have access you to... You know, I mean, it doesn't even have to be in the U.S. Right? to process invoices. So, billing, and we're relying upon this old-fashioned, well, what do your books and records show what your billing address is? It's not relevant anymore. It is a point in place. It's a point in time. It is something that exists. But with respect to matching up 
where the benefit is received, where the service is received, where it's enjoyed, it's completely random, mm-hmm. completely random. You know, and the other one, and, and you, Meredith, you, you hit me on my, I look at these cases, one that's making me crazy is the whole Comcast out of Maryland. And this is one of those things, and I love my partners, but sometimes we talk around the issues and we don't get to a resolution. And what they did here, not blaming the Maryland Department of Revenue for their arguments or the AG there, get to the issue. Is your law mm-hmm. constitutional? They went on. You didn't raise it, administrative act. You did not raise it properly. You raised it because you didn't have a controversy in place and you need to be assessed or pay the tax. Answer the damn question, right? Answer the damn question. We all want to know, and all they've been able to do, it's great strategy in their part. Now this will go back, square one, take us another three to five years to litigate it properly, and then we'll have an answer. What happens during that time? Certain taxpayers are going to pay. Certain taxpayers are not going to pay. They're going to assess them. All the stuff's going to be backed up. If they ultimately win, they got interest in penalties. All the stuff going back up. It's great strategically what they did, but from a try to answer the question, try to resolve the problem, it was the it worst is, but that's possible such an decision. Interesting political and administrative issues that we see so much, and it takes so long to resolve some of these cases. No, no, and, and I think they can do this right. There are ways to tax advertising uniformly, fairly, beyond the Internet Tax Freedom Act. You just got to do it that way, and Maryland hasn't been done that way. When you say digital ads, you know, the argument that they made was digital is digital, uh, digital advertising is different. And the judge who wrote the decision, which was ultimately tossed out, a puppy's a puppy, right? Puppy's a puppy. All the same. Dog's a dog. You call it digital, you call it you know, a, a greyhound versus a, a poodle, but they're both dogs. And advertising is advertising. So, yes, you're doing it, but there's ways to do it right. Maryland has chosen not to do it, what I would consider in a constitutional way. Um, but right now, they've well, got the upper hand. Well, it's sort of punitive. Hand. I feel like oil and gas was kind of a punitive tax. You know, the, all the excise and the whatever they were, ad valorem taxes on um, that industry because it was so pervasive. And then you just see these little taxes coming after large money makers. And they're like, well, you're not paying enough. Like, we need more because you're making too much money. Um, why is that? What's wrong with that? If they can use their good, their money for goodwill, right? Yeah. So I, I think it's punitive policy making. Well, I, it is. I mean, I, I understand. And one of the things that we do have to do as a country is get creative in how we're taxing mm-hmm. stuff. As new products do come up, I think you're, the states are entitled to tax it. Well, let's figure out a way. You know, I, I've always, I've never, I've, I've applauded Ohio. Because Ohio generally does, let's sit down with the taxpayers, let's sit down with taxpayer representatives and hash out a system that we can all live with. Okay? No one's really happy at the end of the day. You know, I forget who the wise person who said it was one of the probably judges. You know, the perfect settlement is where both sides walk away dissatisfied. Mm -hmm. Okay? But they walk away and you have resolution. Ohio has done a pretty good job of getting together with taxpayers, taxpayers' representatives and worked out a solution that nobody's happy with. But they've got buy-in, right? And when a state does it uniformly without that buy-in, you have these challenges. You have the things going on. It just gets litigated out, whereas you can take care of it. The ounce of, was it an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. You know, I think states would be best served by actually working with the taxpayer community before they make radical changes and then get to a solution that we can still make fight about some points. But 
80% of it, 70% of it is agreed to, and let's move on. But you on. don't find the tax I mean, community getting involved as much as you. I would like to see, right? Everybody complains, but nobody puts their neck out to help. I mean, a lot of people are like, I don't want to testify. I don't want to have my name showing up. Like, I don't want to get audited. Right. There's this There's this lack of, of personal. This the, There is something to be said about grassroots efforts getting traction, but you got to get some grass, you know? And sometimes people just aren't willing to put themselves out there unless significant money's at stake. They'd rather complain than take action. So, No, no, we've lost a whole generation of those advocates that were in-house that would say, we're going to fight this. We're going to fight this. And now it's, and I understand it. I mean, litigation has gotten very expensive and so they don't fight everything. But, you know, there are some some organizations that is coalitions, which may be the way to do things. It's, you know, we've got that out in California with PL 86272. They have it in federal court in Maryland for, with the digital advertising. There are coalitions where you have somebody draws a short straw and they're the name mm-hmm. litigant on behalf of a coalition. And the courts seem to be accepting yeah. that. So that's right? a way to get joint forces, you know, and have somebody take that yes. reins yeah. for that. Yeah. Because I, I think you're right. We don't have those one entity that's always fighting everybody, mm-hmm. right? There's, there's, we just corporate America has, and for a lot of good reasons, knowledge affecting customer base, a bunch of different things. You know, you don't know what's going to anger your base, your your customers, and so you try to keep a lower profile with those types yep. of things. And we've seen in the news, uh, you know, the the ramifications of sticking your hand up in the air and saying, I don't agree with that policy, and then. You know, one half of the country is angry with you and half love you or the other half loves you and the other pay hates you. But it's, it's it's difficult. But as a coalition, I think maybe that's something we can work on on a go-forward basis. This podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended, nor should it be relied upon as legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice. Should consult with a competent professional to discuss specifics of your situation and the applicability of the information presented.